to me. Like this. If I talk like this? Okay. Well, good morning. It's a real privilege to be speaking to you all today. I honestly get a sense of excitement just about gathering with all of you guys every Sunday. Um, so it's a special privilege to be speaking this morning. Um, but yeah, as Dale said, we're continuing our summer series today. We're looking at the parables of Jesus. And I'm going to be speaking on the parable of the heart of man. And I wonder if we can do a quick show of hands as to who has heard of this parable before. It's all right if you haven't, because <laughs> I had never heard of it before Quince asked me to speak on it. Um, but then I looked up the passage, and lo and behold, it was familiar after all. I just hadn't realized that there was a parable hidden in it, so maybe you'll find the same today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20 this morning. Um, but just some context before we dive in. Matthew, as a gospel writer, was very focused on Jesus' relationship to the law, the Old Testament law. Um, we know this because he includes very long passages where um, Jesus is explaining the law, the true meaning of the law. And he also includes frequent reminders throughout of how and when Jesus fulfills the law and the Old Testament prophecies. So we know that he's concerned about that. But also, we've got some Pharisees in the passage today, and they're also concerned about Jesus' relationship with the law, although for different reasons. By the way, when I say the law, I'm talking about the commands of God that were given to his people, to the Israelites, that were then written down that we can read in our Old Testament books today. Books like Leviticus. The ones that have actually been written down in our scriptures. So I'm going to begin by reading the whole passage through, first of all, before we dig deeper. So we're in Matthew 15. The words should come up behind me, um, starting in verse 1. It says, Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands 
does not defile them. Now, I'm not going to lie, it's a bit of a weird passage. There's a lot going on in it, and it covers a lot of ground. We're starting off with a question about hand-washing from Pharisees, and then Jesus is debating with them about scripture versus tradition. And then all of a sudden, he's preaching to a crowd. And I'm like, where did the crowd come from? Did they witness the chat with the Pharisees? Who knows? And then Jesus is giving some weird analogy about putting things in your mouth and things coming out your mouth. And then the disciples are worried about offending the Pharisees. And then we're on to the topic of sin before ending with hand-washing again. There's some real twists and turns in this passage. But when I first read it through, I saw three distinct sections where Jesus is interacting with three different groups of people. Firstly, in verses 1 to 9, Jesus is having a conversation with some of the Pharisees. Secondly, in verses 10 to 11, Jesus is addressing the crowds. And this is where he actually delivers his parable that the whole passage centers around. And then thirdly and finally, in verses 12 to 20, Jesus is talking with his disciples and explaining the meaning behind his parable. So hopefully that provides a somewhat helpful framework um, for digesting this passage this morning. But what I'm going to do is go through each of those three dialogues and unpack Jesus' main theme throughout them all. So first of all, we've got the conversation with the Pharisees in verses 1 to 9. So we meet these Pharisees in a place called Gesenaret in Galilee, and they've just traveled a long way from Jerusalem to come and seek Jesus out. Probably they've come with the aim of trying to challenge and discredit him. Hence why they enter the scene in verse 2 with a burning accusation of, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? They're breaking the tradition of the elders. I don't know what goes through your head when you hear that question. Maybe you're thinking, how petty. <laughs> they probably witnessed healings and miracles that defy the laws of nature. In the previous chapter, Jesus fed thousands of people with a few loaves of bread and a few fish, literally conjuring up food from thin air. Save the fact that the way he arrived in Gethsemane was by walking on foot across the Sea of Galilee. Even if the Pharisees in question here hadn't witnessed those specific things, they certainly had their fingers on the pulse, they had their ears to the ground. They were on the lookout for anything that they could use as ammunition against Jesus. So I'm sure that they'd heard reports and seen things for themselves. Yet when they finally get Jesus right in front of them, their only question was about his lack of proper hand washing. I don't know, maybe you heard the question and you thought, washing hands before a meal sounds like a sensible idea. But enough of painting the picture. The crux of the Pharisees' question was their admission that this practice of hand washing was a tradition of the elders. It was not a command of God. The Pharisees, they're not questioning Jesus on matters of scripture, but tradition. Interestingly, they're also not challenging him directly on his own behavior. They're not saying, Jesus, you didn't wash your hands. They're saying, Jesus, your disciples have not been washing their hands before eating. They were upset because his disciples were challenging the authority of the Jewish elders by not following this tradition. Now, this act of ceremonial hand-washing, along with a bunch of other traditions, most likely became common for the Jews during and after the exile, which is recounted back in the Old Testament. You see, it's because the exile happened as a result of the Israelites' lack of faithfulness 
towards God and towards his commands, that these extra, extra traditions were most likely brought in as a sort of safeguarding net or an extra layer of protection around God's laws, sort of like an extra layer of smaller, more achievable, easier to follow rules that they could focus on being faithful to, to prevent them from breaking God's law. And it's, it's, a logical, it's a logical step to make because it is harder to break a really big, important law when there are a bunch of other, smaller, easier to follow rules that you'd have to break before you even got there. So you can see the logic. And as well as that, since they no longer had a temple to worship in whilst they were in exile, many of the rules that were reserved previously just for the priests to um, perform in the temple were now expanded and were performed by most of the Jewish people in the context of the home instead. And I think hand-washing before a meal with bread was um, perhaps fell under this category. But however well-intentioned those traditions were, the point is that they had been elevated over a few hundred years to the same level of importance as the commands of God. And they maybe even overtook the commands of God in some instances. And I think this explains how the Pharisees in today's passage had lost sight of what God had actually asked them to do. And they instead got wrapped up in their own pride-fueled traditions. But back to the passage, what was Jesus' response to the Pharisees' question? Well, he does not actually directly answer their question. He, in fact, never confirms or denies that their, his disciples were not washing their hands before a meal. But instead, Jesus calls the Pharisees out for their hypocrisy. He then gives them an example, which we won't go into now, um, of where another one of their man-made traditions actually counteracted and nullified one of the Ten Commandments. Hence why Jesus quotes a prophecy from Isaiah saying that these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. He's essentially saying that they're just paying lip service to God. Well, these, tra tra these traditions, like we've said, were more achievable than what God had actually called the, the um, Jews to do, the Israelites to do, and they probably made them feel better. These Pharisees felt more righteous, probably, by doing them. But in reality, their hearts were not honoring God by doing them. They had misplaced their confidence and their pride in these works of following the law and tradition, wrongly believing that that's what could earn them salvation. But I think the world would have looked at the Pharisees and seen people who took their faith really seriously, people who behaved very righteously, kept all the rules, always sought to do what was right in God's eyes. But Jesus' response in this passage is an important reminder that God looks at the heart. And Jesus saw right through their facade. He saw that they had a love for status and a love for tradition, a love for the kingdoms of this earth, that they tried to disguise as a love for God. And that gets us to the heart of Jesus' message throughout this passage. God looks at the heart. He is not impressed by outward displays of righteousness, especially when they don't come from a place of loving God. More often than not, I think that the things that impress us as human beings are very far away from the things that impress God. 
So we turn now to Jesus' parable in verses 10 to 11, addressing the crowds. Now he's clearly still stewing over his conversation that he's just had with the Pharisees as he turns now to the crowds and draws upon a similar theme of food to teach them something about the nature of sin. Now we only get a snippet of what he said to the crowd here. We only get two verses that Matthew wrote down, but I imagine in real life he would have actually given a fuller sermon or at least more than two sentences probably. But it says in verses 10 to 11, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. So what is Jesus talking about here? He's using the analogy of food, talking about things that go into your mouth, to make a point about sin. And in this parable, sin is represented by the things that come out of your mouth. In other words, sinful actions, sinful thoughts, sinful words. I think it's important to note the direction of movement in this parable. So Jesus says it's not what goes into someone's mouth that defiles them. In other words, sin is not caused by external factors. Instead, it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles you. So if sin is what comes out of us, then it must already somehow be in us. I think here Jesus is explaining a really important spiritual reality that we could all do with getting a better grasp of. Sin is what theologians would call an ontological problem. In other words, it is intrinsic. Sin is innate, and sinner is the state into which we are all born. It is integral and underlying to human nature. I think we can define it as living to please yourself as opposed to living to please God. And Jesus spells it out a little bit later about what it might look like when he states that simple actions... Things like murder and adultery, theft and slander, they all stem from the heart. So his real question here is, where is your heart at? Because our actions only reveal the disposition of our hearts. They reveal our attitude, our motives, our thoughts, our desires. But the problem, more than our actions, the problem is our hearts. And why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem because... Sin is essentially a serious heart condition which we are all born with and can do nothing about. As human beings, we are completely powerless to solve the issue of sin ourselves. We are totally and utterly without hope. You might notice that Jesus used the term defiled when he said that it's what comes out of your mouth, it's sin that defiles you. This is a word that is used in the Old Testament to describe what happens when you break God's law. When you did something wrong, when you sinned, you became defiled, which means polluted or unclean. And being defiled in the Old Testament meant that you had to be separated from God's holy temple, from his presence, and from his holy people. Because sin cannot exist in the presence of God. And it might sound harsh, but it... It was designed, this system was designed to mirror the spiritual reality that takes place when we sin because sin acts as a barrier which separates us from God and prevents us from having relationship with him. But thankfully, 
there is a solution. The story does not end with the problem. The problem is that we are born with this serious heart condition called sin that we are powerless to do anything about. But the solution is a new heart. I'm going to go back several hundred years before the events of today's passage for a moment when God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel to the Israelites who were at the time in exile. And in Ezekiel 36, God says to the people, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. What amazing words. This was a promise that God made to his people and it's a promise that is true for us today. Note that God says, I will give you a new heart. That means God provides the salvation from sin. He provides a solution. The law cannot solve this heart problem. It can only point out where things have gone wrong. It can diagnose the issue, but it cannot solve it. Only God can give us a new heart. And he repeats at the end of that passage, I will save you from your uncleanness. That is, he will save us from defilement, from sin. Now, having read these verses, I think it is clearer to see where the Pharisees had messed up. They had missed the true intention of the law. You see, unlike how they acted, God does not exist to point us to the law. The law is not the end. The law exists to point us to God. God is the end of all things and the beginning of all things. In Romans 3.20, it says that no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, but rather through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The law could not provide salvation in itself. The Pharisees, therefore, had missed the heart of the issue. I think this is why they were offended by what Jesus says in his parable. It says in verse 12 that the disciples said to Jesus, Didn't, don't you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard what he said? It's because Jesus was effectively saying that all their efforts to rectify the problem of unrighteousness by meticulously following these rules and traditions were completely pointless. Because the problem more than the actions is the heart. The problem was the heart. And you cannot solve the problem of the heart by changing outward behavior. The only solution is a new heart. And only God can do that kind of heart surgery. So that brings us to the third section of this passage, verses 20, 12 to 20, where Jesus is unpacking and explaining further his parable for the sake of his disciples. He's now finished his sermon. The crowds are beginning to disperse, maybe go home for the evening, maybe pitch a tent if they're not locals. But the poor disciples still have some follow-up questions for Jesus. You see, they didn't quite follow his parable earlier. 
They got a bit lost in the twists and turns of the dialogue, and they didn't really follow that weird analogy about putting things in your mouth and things coming out of your mouth. They are easily confused. But you know what? I can relate to them a lot. My family and friends often poke fun of me as to, because of how easily confused I can get. Apparently, one of my catchphrases is, I'm so confused, which has been the source of a lot of amusement back home and still is. In fact, for my birthday a couple of years ago, my loving, loving family got me a custom-made T-shirt with the words, I'm so confused, written on the back of it. I think I even took a picture. You can see it up there. <laughs> so anyway, it's safe to say that I have a great deal of sympathy for Peter when he says to Jesus in verse 15, Jesus, I'm so confused. <laughs> Explain this parable to us, please. And Jesus says, are you still so dull? Have you not got it yet? But then, as always, Jesus goes on to graciously and patiently explain what he was talking about. He is no longer addressing the masses. Now he is talking with his close friends and followers, the people he does life with. And he's explaining his teachings for them. And there's also a bit of a warning in what he says, which I will pick out as well. It's about the traps of falling into sin. I reckon out of the three groups of people that Jesus has interacted with in this passage, the Pharisees, the crowds, and the disciples, I reckon most of us in this room would most likely identify with the disciples here. And so what Jesus says to them is very relevant for us. So Jesus says, I'm going to read from verse 17. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, which lead to sinful actions. So it seems from what Jesus explained that the position of our hearts controls our thoughts. And our thoughts are reflected in and lead to our actions. I was reminded by these verses of the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 5. And in this, Jesus goes through a few of the commands of the law some of the laws such as do not murder or do not commit adultery. And he explains just how far away from those sinful actions we should stay by drawing a strong link between the action and the thought behind it. So for example, he says things like, the law tells you do not murder, but I'm telling you, don't even be angry towards another person in your heart. He also says the law does the law says, do not commit adultery, but I'm saying to you, don't even look at another person with love. See, he knows that our thoughts lead to actions. And he knows that even putting ourselves in temptation's way is a slippery slope. So he warns his disciples to not only stay as far away from the action as possible, but stay far away from the thought. And again, we see that it's all about the heart. The way to safeguard yourself against sin is to control your thoughts. The way to control your thoughts is to line the posture of your heart with God's will. 
how do we how do we do that? How do we align the posture of our heart with God? I think the Ezekiel verses that I read out earlier are relevant here again. See, God said in Ezekiel 36, I will put my spirit in you so that you can be obedient. Note that God does not say, follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws, and then I will put my spirit in you. No, it's only after that we have been saved, after we have God's spirit living in us that we are able to keep his commands not the other way around. See, in the kingdom of God, things happen a bit topsy-turvy to the way that the rest of the world and society works. Usually, you expect to gain a label or a status or an identity based on your actions or based on your behavior, based on what other people can see from the outside reflected in you. As a very simple example, if you don't eat meat, you're a vegetarian. If you start eating meat again, you are no longer a vegetarian, you lose that identity, simple. However, in the kingdom of God, you gain the identity first, and then your actions shift in line with it. When you put your faith in Jesus, you gain the identity of child of God. And then over time, your behavior and actions will begin to reflect that transformation that has happened in the heart. But the good news is, that even if your actions don't line up with your new identity, you still get to keep your identity because it was never based on your actions in the first place. As a church, we have recently finished a Transformed Living series which looked at Ephesians, and hopefully it's not too distant a memory yet, and you can still recall that chapter 4, verse 17, and the following verses. In it, Paul encourages the Christians that they must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now that they have a new identity in Christ, they must put off the old selves and be made new in the attitude of their minds. They must put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. If you are a Christian, if you have been born again, then you already have been given a new heart. You already have this new identity in Christ. You are no longer a sinner, but not because you now never sin, but because you've been gifted with that new identity. But because we have been gifted with that new identity, we've been gifted with this new heart. The next step is to allow the Holy Spirit to help renew our minds, to renew our thoughts, and the transformation which has happened within will begin to become clear from the outside. So let's now return to our Pharisees from the beginning of the passage and ask the question of how do we avoid becoming like them in light of all that we've heard and read? Well, we've already identified where they went wrong. They didn't realize the heart of the issue. In verse 14, when Jesus is talking with his disciples, he calls the Pharisees blind guides. Now, he wasn't talking about physical blindness, he was saying that what made them blind was their inability to see the heart of the issue, to fully comprehend the problem of sin and where it stemmed from. Which is why they kept adding on to God's word, adding on to his law and commands to try and make themselves feel more righteous. This was why they were striving to keep all of these rules and traditions so focused on the goal of perfectly following the Jewish law but as Jesus said, their attempts at worship 
were in vain because their teachings were merely human rules. So if the Pharisees slipped up because they placed their own traditions and extra things onto what God had said, then we need to know what God has actually said, what he has called us to do, what he's asked us to do out of faithfulness to him. And we find that out by reading and digesting God's word. We need to know what he has said, know what the Bible says about sin and grace. That particularly has been on my heart as I've been preparing over the last few weeks. And I I challenge every single one of us this morning to spend real time grappling with the reality of the weight of sin. Maybe it's something you've never really thought much about. Maybe you haven't really thought about it since the day you were saved or the day of your baptism. Or maybe you think about it daily. I, I don't know, but it doesn't matter. Think about it again and let it sink in on a whole new level. I remember being in my teens at New Day, which is a big Christian youth festival, when the knowledge of my sin first brought me to tears. I had obviously thought about it before that point because I was already a Christian, but somehow in that moment I went deeper in a revelation of what it meant of how big an obstacle it had been, and therefore how amazing God's grace was. And I've not let go of that feeling since. My goal is to go forward in that, press deeper into it regularly. And it might sound all doom and gloom, but it's only, I urge this because I found that once you are in that place of facing this spiritual reality head on, facing the reality that sin is a serious heart condition that I was born with that condemns me to death, that there is no hope outside of Jesus, that I am powerless to do anything about this problem, that suddenly the knowledge of Jesus' death on the cross, his grace and his unfailing love become even sweeter and even more astounding. And I think that revelation, that knowledge is the key to avoiding falling into the trap that the Pharisees fell into. You see, they were too caught up in legalism to realize all of this. Legalism has been defined by John Piper as the conviction that law-keeping is the grounds for our acceptance with God. He says it is a failure to be amazed at grace. So church, let's be amazed at grace. Let's be astounded by it. Let it blow your minds. Be amazed at grace. So where does that leave us today? Well, we've covered a lot this morning. The key points I will summarize. God looks at the heart. He is not impressed by our outward displays of righteousness. As well as that sin stems from the heart, then it's because of this, due to the nature of sin, that we are powerless to solve the issue ourselves. The only solution is a new heart, and only God can do that. And finally, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't miss the heart of the issue. But instead, dig into the word and seek an even fuller understanding of God's grace. In a minute, I'm going to pray for us all because I I believe that there is a way in which we can all respond to 
what we've heard today. And then I'm going to invite Dale back up to go from there. But before I pray, I wanted to say that if there's anything that I've said today, either about following laws or about parables or about sin and grace that you wanted to respond to either for the first time or the hundredth time, then please do come and speak to me or Dale or Quincy or Kevin at the end and we'll pray with you. But now I'm going to pray for us all. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us through your word. Thank you that you gave us your word. Thank you that you gave us your word in flesh. You gave us Jesus, your son, that he could provide the salvation for us, that he could provide the solution to this unsolvable problem of sin. And I pray right now for every single one of us that this morning and in the weeks and days coming, that you would give us a a fuller revelation and understanding of the weight of our sin, even if it's something we've thought about lots before. Would you help us to go deeper in that, in understanding that, and therefore in understanding the amazing grace that you have shown us. And I pray that this would lead to a heart of worship for all of us, that our worship would not be in vain like the Pharisees was. It would be founded on the knowledge and the truth of your gospel. Amen.